Hi, I'm Emily Salaby, founder of Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company, and your host on the Hazard Girls podcast here on Jacket Media. I'm so honored to host this show where I get to chat with Hazard Girls about their careers. Hazard Girls is an online community for women working in traditionally male-dominated fields. On our show, you'll get to hear from these amazing women about the path that led them to their current careers, challenges they've overcome, advice for other women in entering these industries, and more. Janet Pollock is the author of The Seven Mistakes New Managers Make, How to Avoid Them and Thrive. A retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel with a PhD in Organizational Leadership and Development, Dr. Pollock is also a speaker and executive coach through her company, In the Lead, Inc., She has a passion for coaching leaders to help them develop their skills to make a positive impact in their organizations and the world. She has coached leaders in the U.S., China, South Korea, Singapore, Puerto Rico, Ireland, and the Netherlands. Welcome to the Hazard Girls podcast, Janet. Thank you so much, Emily. It's so nice to be here. We're really happy to have you here to talk about leadership, which is something that all women in male-populated fields can benefit from. And you also have quite the hazard girls background yourself. You're a retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel. Yep, I am. So years ago when I joined the Marine Corps, it was before Iraq and Desert Storm and Afghanistan and peace was literally breaking out all over. And I graduated from college with a degree in education and I couldn't decide what to do. So I joined the Marine Corps. I talked to all four service recruiters and the Marines were just really good at what they did. (laughs) They (laughs) hit all my right buttons. So I joined the Marine Corps to just kind of buy my time and some for my career. Little did I know that 20 years later, I would be a retired Lieutenant Colonel. I spent that time both on active duty and in the reserves. And in our careers, we often don't plan step by step. We kind of let our careers happen to us. And little did I know that so much would change for women in the military in the 20 years that I was a Marine. In part, thanks to Desert Storm and Iraq and Afghanistan, women now are in all combat roles. They weren't in any combat roles when I became a Marine. We have general officers commanding um, major units across the services. And so I think it took us being deployed to combat areas, doing a great job, and slowly things changed. And, you know, now the Marine, the military is just a great place for women to work and thrive and learn long-term occupational skills and, and find their voice. It's so incredible to hear that. It's it's really, it's just, it's just good news to hear that. And I think a lot of people who aren't don't have a background in the military, might not really know much about the military, maybe aren't interested in it, might think, well, why is it so important for women to make it in the military? And I think I, I asked myself this question when I was in high school and I heard about the debates about, you know, women having power in the military. And then I learned that, well, of course, you know, a lot of leadership positions come through them are people that come through the military and they have connections and the leadership that they get in the military helps them in other aspects of their career. Can you talk a little bit about that? I'm just curious on your take on that. Well, the military, and I'll talk especially about the Marine Corps, that we invest in leadership from the very day that you join the Marines. Mm -hmm. It happens in boost camp. It happens in officer candidate school. It happens in all the service schools as you go up through the ranks. 
So leadership is critical to what the military does, and they invest in it tremendously. And that's where I learned my under, underpinnings about what is good leadership? What does it look like? How do you develop it well? Which led to my whole career around leadership development and coaching. I tell people that, you know, good leadership is about encouraging and engaging. It's not about telling someone to go do something and expecting them to do it. And I think that's probably the biggest disconnect between what civilians think about military leadership is about and what active duty people know what military leadership is about. Mm -hmm. It's about engaging. It's about building trust. It's about telling the other person what the expectations are and what are the goals Mm -hmm. and then helping them get there. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about following commands. And I think the passion that you developed through your work with the military, with the Marines and, and rising up through the ranks there really speaks to that because your whole career is all about understanding the nuances of leadership and then helping other people to develop them. Now, you're an, so you're an executive coach. You're a speaker. Yes. You're an author. You recently released The Seven Mistakes New Managers Make, How to Avoid Them and Thrive. And I would love to dig in a little bit on some of these topics that you're covering in the book. I know we can't, I wish we could cover every single one. I know we don't have time, <laughs> yep. all seven, but yeah, I mean, I, well, first I have a question for you because I was, as I was reading through some of your key points, I just wondered, what is the difference between management and leadership? Are those the same to you? Well, I think leadership is an overall global idea that management and supervision fits under. We do think of leadership as much more strategic. It's setting the direction of the organization. It's executing on the long-term goals. It's much more long-term and communicative oriented, where management is really responsible to the day-to-day running of the business. You provide work direction to the people that you supervise. You give them immediate feedback on an ongoing basis. You find out what they want to do longer term and help them develop those skills uh, within their role to be successful. It's interesting, though, that there's some statistics that say 80% of an organization's performance is based on their frontline leadership. And so it really is about that day-to-day converting action into productivity into results. Converting action into productivity into results. Mm-hmm. And then so do you think that, do you consider a manager to be just a type of leader, but not a fully developed leader? How, how do you perceive a manager? Emily, I think that's a good way to describe that. I think managers are evolving and developing Some, of course, don't get past the manager ranks. Here's an interesting statistic is in the average organization across the U.S., individuals become supervisors or managers kind of in their early 30s. That's late 20s, early 30s. They usually don't have their first management training until their mid 40s. Wow. So they've been in that role sometimes 12 and 15 years before anybody has taught them how to do it well. And then, of course, from a longer term perspective, if you're not a good manager, you're never going to be a good leader. And what we're seeing, I believe, in this great resignation or the big quit that we're hearing about is individuals are leaving their managers over and over again. 
because they're tired of working for jerks. They're tired of working for people that don't listen to them, don't give them any feedback, don't encourage them. And they say, you know, with millions of opening open jobs right now, I just don't need to work for this individual anymore. Well, we're going to get, yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit. One thing that you said in the show notes, which I thought was interesting, is great management is about connecting with each individual, understanding what motivates them, and then helping them thrive in the work they do. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, what are some of the techniques that managers can use to really connect with team members on that level and really understand what motivates each individual person? Yeah, Emily, thank you. I think it starts with having regular one-on-ones between manager and employee. And it's interesting. I I think I spend more time teaching, coaching on one-on-ones than almost any other topic that I talk to frontline managers about. It's setting aside 30 minutes every week or every other week to talk with that individual. How are you doing? You know, what's going on in your life and, and how is it impacting the work you do? What have you accomplished in the last couple of weeks that you feel especially proud of? And what did you learn? And then what are some of the challenges that you face? So it's not those one on ones aren't about going through a checklist of how's project A? What about project B? What about project C? It really starts with how are you and how are you doing And then what else can I do to help you thrive in this workplace? And you also mentioned that managers can play a key role in helping employees find meaning in the work that they do. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they can help these employees connect their values with those aspects of their work. And is this for team members who kind of seem to be floundering that are sort of just in it for the paycheck so the leader can come in and help them identify more meaning? Is that what you mean by that? Well, I think that finding meaning is a very individual uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. And so fi- for some individuals, they connect with the overall mission of the organization. You know, if it's healthcare or if it's biotech, they are trying to help individuals feel better and live a healthier life. For those of us in manufacturing organizations, they may not have as noble a cause, but they still are committed to creating a high quality product every day or reaching the team's objectives every day because when the team reaches an objectives, everybody feels satisfied. So you can see, depending on the work environment, the objectives or what someone finds meaning of can be very, very different. I think even if you have a baseline job, a job that you do every single day that is quite redundant, Finding out, well, why do they come back? Yeah, it might be a paycheck, but with all these openings that are around the country right now, there is something more that's driving people to come to their job than just a paycheck every day. So it's a manager's job to find out what that is and then to try to nurture that and give them even more. You know, if they find, say, there's a redundant job and they find ways, uh, they have work for a manager who wants to see process improvement. It actually takes time to listen to employees about how could we drive cost out of this project process or how do we make it more efficient? It's listening to those individuals, taking time to understand how it might work, and then driving that process forward to improvement rather than just saying, oh, good idea. I wish we could make a change. It's so interesting to me that a lot of the things that you're talking about are things like, you know, being a better listener, 
connecting, you know, talking, you, you said great management is about connecting with each, with each individual. And then you also said that we have to help employees find the meaning in the work that they do. And in a lot of ways, what you're describing sounds a bit like a stereotypical feminine trait, like the ability to sort of connect, empathize, help. These are traits that are valued in a lot of pink collar type careers like teaching and nursing. But leadership is often seen, you know, for better or for worse, it's seen as a masculine discipline. So how does that translate when you're, you're saying that what's helping and what's what's creating better leadership are these stereotypically feminine traits? Mm. You know, Emily, I think that, first of all, what we know from a lot of research in the field of leadership development and, and gender research is that women actually are better managers and leaders than men. And it is oftentimes because of some of these traits that you are pointing out, being collaborative, listening well, taking time to give feedback. And yet I don't see them as necessarily feminine or masculine traits. I think of them as really good, solid frontline management techniques. And it's kind of why I wrote the book, because it, there wasn't a lot out there about how do you be a good, solid manager? How do you connect with other people? Yes, some people do it very naturally. And I think I've experienced both men and women do it very naturally, but a lot of them don't. When I get in with a group of people and I say, think about a great manager that you worked for once, you would not believe how many people scratch their head and say, I can't think of one. I've never had a good manager that I worked for. And sadly, that's true. And so whether this comes naturally or not, thinking back to what does good frontline management look like, it looks like asking questions. It looks like answering, um, listening and summarizing what you hear. It's taking time to give people feedback and compliment them for the work that they're doing. You know, you're making me think of an interview I did last year with Mitzi Perdue, the widow of Frank Perdue. And she talked about his leadership. Actually, I can't remember if she said it in the interview or if I read it in one of her books, but she talked about um, how Frank would connect with all of the employees. I mean, he thousands of people and he he knew everyone he knew everyone's name and he knew what was going on with their families and he if someone's in the hospital he would go visit them mm -hmm. and when you think about it i mean these are the traits of a good leader he this is how you create such a successful organization and i'm sure no one thought of him as a feminine leader so mm -hmm. yeah. no it's just sort of like the, these are traits that maybe um maybe we need to be more open-minded about who is providing these traits mm -hmm. and how we're perceiving them in in society well, you mentioned uh, a few times, you mentioned about the great, okay, tell me what you call it, the great re resignation? The great resignation, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, you talked about the great resignation. What is that? So in the last, I was just listening to another podcast this morning while I was working out, 20 million people have voluntarily left their jobs in the last six months in the United States. How many? 20 million Oh my gosh. Many of them have gone to other jobs, but many of them didn't have jobs. Now, of course, the first response to that often is, well, the government provided so much substance over 2020 that people could afford to leave their, their jobs and not have another one. And what's emerging from the data is that that's not necessarily true. 
that the states that set shut down supplemental income last summer don't have better employment rates than states that didn't. Mm-hmm. And so individuals just finally felt like this COVID time was a time for deep reflection, that redundant jobs that are leading to nowhere are no longer satisfactory, working for managers that don't have my best interest at heart are no longer satisfactory. And so people are leaving their jobs. I think what we're going to find in early 2022 now is that people have taken that several weeks to reflect and are moving back into the workforce. Because, you know, you can't stay unemployed forever. You can't afford to. (laughs) I think this whole great resignation is a time of reckoning for us in organizations to say, so, you know, how do we get people to stay? How do we engage in individuals who have tough jobs and yet they stay for 10 and 12 and 15 years? Those people that stay, I would bet more often than not, are staying because the work environment is supportive and engaging and they're also paid a reasonable living wage. You know, so it's a twofold thing that the compensation matters but I don't believe it matters more than the work environment they're they're working in. So there's a disconnect you mentioned between what employees are expecting from their work environment, right? So they're expecting a certain amount of support. They're expecting, you know, certain things in, in a workplace that employers may or may not be willing to provide. And if they're not getting it, they're leaving. Is it that leaders aren't aware of what the employees expect and need, or is it just that they don't care, or is it that they do care, but they just can't afford to meet, for whatever reason, can't afford to meet those needs? I think, Emily, it's all of the above. And I think that a lot of managers don't engage with their employees because they're afraid of the answer. You know, so if if I say to an employee, how you how are you doing? And they say, I barely can make ends meet. If I had $2 an hour more, everything would be great. Mm -hmm. Well, that manager knows that they can't most likely afford $2 an hour more because they'd have to pay everybody that. But what else is in the middle of that request? And if I don't ask the question as a manager, I might never know. You know, yeah, if I can't get $2 an hour, could I shift my shift to 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. so that I have less daycare expenses and I can get home and relieve the daycare burden after I work. So it's a different way that might give me my, if I have, you know, four hours a day in daycare expenses rather than eight hours a day of daycare expenses, that might change the equation and allow me to feel like I'm getting an extra two bucks an hour. And so if managers don't take the time to ask and have the conversation, and it's not a one-on, it's not a one-way thing. You need $2 an hour. I can't give it to you. It's okay. I can understand you need some more compensation. What are some other options here for us? Mm -hmm. And so it's having that conversation. And I think fundamentally managers are afraid that they may not have solutions. Mm -hmm. And so they don't ask. How do you find that balance as a manager, you know, between being the person's employer 
or boss and their friend. I mean, how, mm. how do you, especially as women, we we tend to open up to each other a lot, especially in the workplace and in certain work environments. So how do you kind of like create that line? Mm-hmm. So you still have to be their boss. And I think many of us have an experience of when we weren't and how difficult that was. I know I certainly had an experience like that when I was a captain, that I got to be uh, too too friendly and, and too chummy with one of my Marines, and I needed to give him a really negative performance review. And it was very, very difficult. So I think you have to continue to separate. You can ask questions about family and how they're doing, how things are working outside of work. But your job isn't to fix all of that. Your job is to listen and help them connect with their work when they're at work. If, for example, they have a situation where they need some time off, you know, can we give them compensation for that time off? Can we not send them home with work because we're home is so chaotic right now? For example, you know, what are some solutions within the work context to help support them and thrive? But you're right, Emily, we, you know, I think we can be friendly, but not friends. Mm-hmm. So could, how do we do this? How do we create this environment where we can talk to each other? You mentioned having one-on-one meetings. Are there other mm-hmm. practical things that managers can do to make sure that they're staying connected and understanding what's going on with their employees? Well, I think having regular team meetings when you get the entire team together, whether that's all via Zoom or Teams or live, talking about you know what people are working on so everybody's educated and talking about what's working well. Mm-hmm. You know, in these times, life is hard. You know, we feel disconnected. Things seem to be more difficult than they used to be. And so it's easy when you get the team together to dive right into what's not working. Mm-hmm. But starting with what is working, who's doing a great job, yeah. and over time getting your team members to talk about what is going well and not just me saying, oh, Jane did a spectacular job on this presentation or Stephen did such and such and it was really helpful and it saved a bunch of costs. I think it's developing an environment where recognition and feedback is just part of the regular team Mm -hmm. rather than me being responsible for all of that all the time. Do you think that a leader in an organization has to be a naturally charismatic person? Or do you think that, you know, being able to conduct these these meetings where you're actually inspiring people and keeping everyone satisfied with their job, do you think that that can be learned? I think it absolutely can be learned. You wouldn't be doing what you were doing if you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. It certainly is how I make my living. And yet I think a lot of times people don't know how. They have the will. I want to be more engaging with my employees, but I don't know how to do it. Yeah. So setting up a climate for giving feedback on a regular basis, sharing recognition on a regular basis, meeting with your staff each one-on-one on a regular occurrence are all good strategies. And what happens, um, especially when I talk with, with teams about giving feedback, you know, you start the conversation and you say, oh, what's your thought about giving feedback? And everybody says, yuck. You know, it never goes well. I alienate people. And then I introduce a very simple process about here's what good feedback includes. And people generally have an aha. They say, 
you know, I guess it is a lot about the content and thinking about how do I deliver the message, not, you know, avoiding it and well, if you could and using all this kind of casual tentative language. And so I think, yes, we can learn the skills to do this well. For some of us, it will be tiring. You know, being out in front of the team and cheerleading and getting them to follow you for an introvert is very, can be very exhausting. And yet for introverts, doing one-on-one should be where they thrive. Yeah. Because that one-on-one for someone who is, gets their energy from inside should really thrive when they have those individual conversations. That's a good point. So if you're if you're an introvert, you should be thriving there. And if you're an extrovert, maybe you should be thriving in the team meeting. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. That's interesting what you said about how when you're giving feedback, don't use that tentative language. What what other tips do you have for feedback? Well, I think the key to feedback is describing the impact that that behavior had on everybody else. Hmm. You know, if you come in late to work, for example, you know, maybe there's an impact on the line. Maybe your customer service person and the next person can't leave. In many work environments now, the time we start work and the time we end is very, very fluid. But if your lateness causes somebody else to work a longer shift, mm-hmm. there's an impact there. Right. And you might not have in your chaotic life, you know, your three kids and your dual income family, and you're trying to figure out who's going where, when, and whether school's actually going to happen today. You know, it can be very chaotic for you to get to work. And yet, so you don't really think about the impact of your lateness having on other people. And so I think very succinctly describe what the behavior is, you're late, and the impact it had is Sharon had to stay an extra 20 minutes to cover the shift because you weren't here. Now, and then very simply move forward. So how do we help to make this work well in the future? My daycare, I can't drop off in daycare until seven o'clock in the morning. So it's impossible for me to get here at 7.15 oh, do you think we should have your shift start at 7.30? Can you get here on time every single time at 7.30? Yes, absolutely. So there was an old, he is old now, he's still practicing. His name is Jack Zanger. And he was one of the very first individuals in the U.S. that created leadership development programs, you know, that you could buy and reproduce and so forth. Mm -hmm. And he used to say in his video, it shouldn't take you longer than 60 seconds to deliver constructive feedback. Hmm, Okay. There's not a lot of content that goes in 60 seconds because we describe the behavior, we describe the impact, and then we move forward into, okay, now how are we going to fix the solution? So don't dwell on it. Don't. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Don't stay in that space. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things you do in your coaching is you help people find what's holding them back. And you also help people understand how they're being perceived by others. And I I think what you, you just probably explained part of that when you said, you're explaining the consequences of their actions and that might affect mm-hmm. people's perception of them. But are there other ways that you can help people understand how they're being perceived if, if there's a disconnect with them? Well, oftentimes in coaching, we do something called a 360. Okay. Usually it's the coach that gathers the data. I interview a bunch of people and they I hear from them about what does this person do well? What are some opportunities for improvement? How could you help them be even more successful? 
and then summarize those. There's also a number of online assessments. Center for Creative Leadership does one. The Hogan Institute does one that has a number of structured statements. And you say, yes, this really describes Emily. You know, this really doesn't describe Emily. I occasionally ask individuals to go seek feedback themselves. I'm putting a leadership program together right now where at the end of the first module, we're going to ask people to go out and get feedback themselves from five individuals. So I think it's having the act of collecting feedback, whether you do it yourself or whether you get someone else to do it, you're not always aware of how you're doing. And with women, they particularly aren't aware of how they're, what they're doing well. Women tend to focus on where they're coming up short, what they didn't have time to do. And yet the 360 process, that process of collecting feedback can help them understand, oh, wow, I really love when Emily does this. And she also is really good at that. And so starting to tick down those things that are successes and accomplishments as well as opportunities. How do you distinguish between that and like what Betty White said, who just passed away, as she's one of my favorites, said, don't believe your own hype. Mm. So when people are, I, you know, when people are maybe praising you or mm-hmm. if you're getting a lot of kudos over something, how do you know where to sort of like draw the line on, on taking credit? Wow. Good question, Emily. I hadn't really thought about it so much. I, I think it's the frequency of the comments. Mm-hmm. You know, if if one person says you knocked it out of the park on this presentation, you might want to take that with a little bit of grain of salt. But if you gather feedback from six or eight people and they all said, Emily is always prepared for her presentations. Her visuals are always interesting and she's very, very succinct. If I hear that from six different people, mm-hmm. I think you should believe it. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense for sure. You mentioned also, and just getting back to the whole thing between leadership and management, mm-hmm. you mentioned that managers are often promoted because they're great individual contributors, mm-hmm. but we're not preparing them for how their role evolves when they have to get that job done through others. Right. And I'm just wondering how, you know, in the few minutes that we have left here, what are some tips on how we can prepare them? Well, I think we encourage them to start studying leadership before they become leaders. You know, there's thousands of books that have been written. There's podcasts, there's TED Talks. So if you want to be a manager, start thinking about what is management behavior before you become promoted. I think as a a leader in your organization, starting to prepare some people that you want to promote to management before having book talks or article reviews, that kind of thing. I think you can get your team together and read professional articles about what management looks like and have a have a book talk about it. So it can be very informal and it also can be more formal. But I hope organizations are starting to prepare individuals before they make that big jump, because it is a pretty big jump from an individual contributor to a manager. Yeah, I think I think that's really good advice. And I hope that People are reading your book and learning about this and implementing it in their own organizations. How can our listeners get in touch with you, Janet? Oh, thank you so much. My website is www.inthelead.co. 
The book is available on Amazon and also on my website. And they certainly can reach out to me at Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at inthelead.co. Well, Dr. Janet Pollock, author of The Seven Mistakes New Managers Make and Retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel. Thank you so much for joining us on the Hazard Girls podcast today. We've all learned so much. Oh, it was a delight. Thank you so much, Emily. You have been listening to the Hazard Girls podcast on Jacket Media, sponsored by Juno Jones, the stylish safety boot company. That's junojonesshoes.com. And you can go there to learn about our steel toe boots and to join the Hazard Girls community. I'm your host, Emily Salaby. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.